Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us with Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This episode provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Vicki Vasiliga, and I am the director of the section of clinical specialists and scientists here at ASHP, and I will be your host for today's episode. So with me today is Hegira Abraham, clinical psychiatric and mental health pharmacist at Kaiser Permanente San Jose Medical Center. And today we're going to talk about her experience leading a transgender men's health education group. Welcome. Thank you so much, Vicki. So let's get started and you can tell me a little bit about yourself and your current position. Yeah. So thanks again. I'm Hajira Abraham. I'm a clinical psychiatric pharmacist over at Kaiser San Jose up north in San Jose, California. Of most recently, I'm also the PGY2 psychiatric pharmacy residency program coordinator. So Primarily, I practice as a clinical psychiatric pharmacist in the ambulatory care setting. I have my own patient panel. I try to treat medications, order labs, et cetera, work collaboratively with our psychiatrists. And then also I precept, help teach and mentor residents and, you know, coordinate our residency program. Yeah, just a little bit of everything. <laughs> just a little bit of everything. Yeah. Can you share with us a little bit about what your day is like mm-hmm. and how you became involved in the care of transgender patients? So again, every day has been actually a little bit different. <laughs> But primarily, you know, I have my own panel of patients. I see adults from, you know, 18 to 80 plus years old. So I have my own panel of patients that I follow. They usually have a primary diagnosis of either schizophrenia or bipolar, but I do manage, you know, any of their mental health issues or concerns, manage their metabolic syndrome, order labs, order medications, address labs, you know, respond to messages, whether it's from providers or patients. And then I also kind of really help coordinate our residency program. And I precept as well when first year and second year residents are on rotations with me for like to get a student, I do that as well. So that's really what my work entails at my job currently. Before that, as a resident, both my PGY1 and PGY2, I did it at the VA Loma Linda in Loma Linda, California. And actually during my PGY1 residency year, that's where I actually was really ready to start on, start my training as a resident, learn as much as I can. And, you know, as I was looking through electives, I saw a LGBTQIA plus integrated with women's health elective. And so I was like, oh, I never really learned this in pharmacy school. This is very unique. And I was like, oh, actually more than anything, I really wanted to learn more about it. Like, and a pharmacist is involved in it. Like we never really got any exposure in pharmacy school besides maybe like a lecture on, you know, some terminology that we should be aware of, but that was basically it. So I took that elective, I want to say maybe early spring of my PGY1 residency year. And I want to say that has probably been the most life-changing experience, you know, of my residency career, actually, even until today, you know, even though I am actually super passionate about mental health and psychiatry, and that was really the end goal, this just kind of really opened my eyes to the way I practice and the way I wanted to practice, or I foresaw myself practicing. So I got to see how the pharmacist was, you know, involved in gender affirming care, you know, both seeing patients on her own, as well as interprofessionally collaborating with the team. I got to see both ends of the spectrum and I actually got to be integrated into that. So with that, there was an opportunity to teach patients, health education groups for transgender patients. I guess they were kind of flowing back and forth with it, you know, for a while and it was kind of to a halt and they really wanted to kind of revamp it and restart it. So my preceptor at the time, you know, approached me and she said, hey, do you want to lead this on? And 
I was like, I would be honored. It was definitely a new experience for me. So that's kind of where I first got into it and where I first started. So I didn't know what to do then. She kind of helped me, I guess, build it, call the patients. She also obviously was there to kind of really oversee me, but it was just a whole different experience. I had never thought going into a PGY1 residency, this is what I would be kind of helping to pilot. So can you tell me a little bit more about the transgender health clinic and a little bit more about the role the pharmacist plays and caring for the patient population and a little bit about your role in the team? Yeah. So the pharmacist really plays a role in so many aspects, mainly clinically. So the pharmacist will follow up with the patient sometimes to you know assess any therapy they were prescribed, whether it's hormonal or any other medications, right? Because a lot of these medications do have monitoring parameters that you need to be aware of. They do have side effects. So the pharmacist has to kind of really follow up, make sure things are, you know, clinically, you know, within good limits, titrate anything that needs to be titrated, taper down anything. You know, basically what any pharmacist with any other disease state would do. But there's also kind of that aspect where the pharmacist is following up from, okay, they're kind of really checking in to see how the patient is doing. So that would be kind of like a one-on-one -on -one with the patient, right? That's just that individual appointment with the pharmacist. The pharmacist is also part of an interprofessional team where we'd actually meet all together with the patient. And it would you know, typically include the pharmacist, an endocrinologist, maybe a primary care physician or a nurse practitioner, a nurse, a psychologist. We also had on our team a chaplain, which was actually pretty unique, but it was really interesting to see the chaplain's perspective as well. And the chaplain actually really did play a big role. And what was eye-opening for me is during school, we were integrated into interprofessionalism, but we were integrated into it more of a clinical aspect, right? We didn't really integrate a lot of like, okay, the mental health aspect, some of the non-conventional aspects that actually a patient needs, right? A patient you know, needs additional support besides just the clinical, because there is a term, I guess, like why co-hypertension, right? Sometimes patients don't really, I guess, let out as much as they want to, because maybe there's some sort of anxiety or fear, or they see some kind of like an authoritative figure. Absolutely. And so it kind of really breaks that barrier. And of course they have different outlooks on the patient's needs as well. So they provide a lot of value and input. So that's really what you know, usually the clinic actually at the VA at the time, that was a model, but most clinics really do have an interprofessional collaborative practice. Some clinics, this is kind of from what I hear, is they'll primarily have like an endocrinologist that's kind of really just assessing their gender affirming therapy. But really, I think, you know, what I got out of it is you do need that interprofessional collaboration. So, and with pharmacists really adds a role is obviously the clinical aspects and medication aspects. And, you know, a lot of the times pharmacists, at the end of the day, we don't really bill. So it's easier for patients to access care. So that was really valuable for them as well. Sure. So I like that you kind of talked about how there are different patient needs. You talk about the clinical needs, you talk about their spiritual needs. Let's just dive into it a little bit more. Can you tell me a little bit more about the patient's clinical and biopsychosocial needs that you learned about in this patient population? Yeah, definitely. So I definitely learned that you know, a lot of times with the patients, you actually do have to say it how it is, right? You do just have to come out things from a clinical perspective and from a safety perspective. And, you know, I'll be honest, you know, just coming in with some of my own, like, I don't want to say implicit biases, but implicit thoughts or ideas of, I don't want to offend a patient. How do I tiptoe around and say, yes, I understand, you know, 
you identify this gender, etc. But how do I tiptoe around? But we need to assess, you know, you for a cervical cancer screening, right? Right. It's like you still have that anatomy and I still need to be aware of your health needs. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And what I learned is actually once you actually come out of it from a safety perspective and a clinical perspective, like, hey, this is just basically a relative biological thing that we do, a protocol that we do. It has nothing to do with your identity. And once you separate that aspect, it's actually easier than I thought. So that's one thing I actually realized is that it's okay to just explain things from a basic, very blunt clinical perspective. Sure. So the clinic you work with has been caring for patients across the gender identity spectrum since 2011. It looks like we're touching a little bit on like cultural competency. So I'm curious to see what have been your challenges and barriers in practice and what have you implemented to improve patient care and access? Yeah, so definitely. I think one of the biggest barriers is lack of knowledge and fear from providers like what if I make a mistake or I don't know this very well? So I'm not even going to touch it, right? I'm not even going to touch any estrogen that's higher than this dose. I'm not even going to deal with it or if it's for this indication because I'm not comfortable. And so that limits patients access to care, but also trust in providers because they feel like, well, my provider's probably not competent enough or not educated or not even that. Do they even want to learn about this? Are they interested in knowing who I am as a person or am I just part of a limited practice setting? So I think that was a barrier. And I think what I learned and one thing that we actually have been implementing is a lot of education and not even that, just like simple ways to do icebreakers, right? I mean, you know, having inclusive, you know, gear, inclusive badge, right? Lanyards, whatever it may be, just to kind of break that initial barrier or ice without having to say anything. Right. And saying, look at what I'm wearing, look at the way that I'm carrying myself, posters in the hall saying, listen, this is a safe place. You can be yourself here. You can ask your questions. I'm not going to judge you. I'm here as a partner in your gender affirming care. Exactly. So you did present a poster here. So that's why I reached out to you a little bit earlier to our listeners and you've had a pretty successful program. Can you tell us a little bit about your program successes and then what you're excited about next and where you see this going from there? I mean, we did have a small cohort. We had 17 patients overall, but we had overall significant results across all of our questions. So the six questions basically touched upon if a patient was on gender-affirming hormone therapy, whether or not they'd likely to continue their hormone therapy, or whether or not they'd start one if they weren't prescribed one, how beneficial they would feel it is with regards to gender-affirming therapy, how confident they feel about their understanding of gender-affirming therapy, whether it's the benefits, the risks, the limitations, how beneficial they felt the group would have been towards their journey and their gender-affirming care in general, how strongly they feel that limited cultural competence or stigma or biases from providers really affects their willingness to start or even continue their therapy and how they believe that stigma really affects their overall care. So we actually found that, you know, before a lot of the education to patients, they actually really felt like very impactful on a lot of the providers stance and how they carry themselves and their lack of cultural competency that actually really did affect their care and their willingness to basically seek gender affirming therapy and 
affirm their identity, which is actually heartbreaking because it's saying, well, I don't want to be who I am because I'm scared my provider isn't accepting me or I'm scared my provider doesn't even know what this is or is kind of taking all of this for granted, feeding me you know, what I might want to hear and then sending me out the door. Do they genuinely care? Are they genuinely interested? And even throughout the initial 10 weekly sessions that I did with this cohort, I actually got to know each patient individually. And I think that was probably one of the most unique things about the group is that, you know, I got to actually ask them, you know, hey, if a provider doesn't know, do you take offense to that? If a provider makes a mistake or doesn't call you by your pronouns or doesn't address you by, you know, your pronouns or your identity, do you take huge offense to that? And it's like, oh no, I mean, as long as they just say sorry and they correct themselves immediately and they move on, you know, that's okay. So I think a lot of it is there's a fear from providers. There's that they don't want to offend the patient, but at the same time, that is actually creating a barrier within itself. And that's one of the unique things that I found within the group. And just educating the patients, educating them about gender affirming therapy, educating them about, you know, different aspects of what we do behind the scenes, educating them about basically, you know, supplements, educating them about what general providers, their perspective is. Just having that general education to the patients really actually help significantly change their perspective on them seeking gender affirming therapy. Probably one of the driving forces was that they saw that providers really care and we took that feedback and they actually saw change. So we actually had a lot of education to our clinic during Pride Month. We had a lot of lectures to providers like in services. We also kind of had Pride Day. So I think they saw a lot of change kind of subtly happening and they also felt that hey, you know, there's providers out there that are comfortable with this. They know what they're doing. My needs and like are trying to do the right thing. Exactly. They're trying to find this information out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we kind of talked about cultural competency. I'm curious to see how did you cultivate a culture of safety for these patients? Because I think a lot of times one of the barriers to care and access is, like you said, it's like, well, you know, physicians are going to, my team is going to judge me. They don't understand my needs. They don't have that competency. And then even talking about when you interviewed these patients and you brought that information back to your team, how do you make sure that your team continues to practice that cultural competency to ensure that that culture of safety remains? One of the things that was a theme on and on again is basically the main theme is normalizing everything at the end of the day, right? The patient is still a patient. They're just a human being. So just normalizing things. One of the things I've been doing is like, I'll introduce myself like, hi, my name is Dr. Abraham. My pronouns are she or her, hers. And that kind of breaks the barrier of like, oh, okay, well, I'm comfortable now talking, you know, about who I am. Mm -hmm. I think having an education from a top-down level to providers, I think is important. And I think it should be integrated with, you know, initial education in terms of hiring staff and like, hey, this is our environment, this is our culture. And like I said earlier, having just the subtlest things, like having a pride flag, you know, or a banner in your office, you know, having a lanyard, just like little simple things. Documentation is actually very important because patients have access to their charts. They can always request, you know, hey, I really wanted to look at their notes. And you know, I've, I've actually had that happen where patients ask, hey, I want to look at my chart. And if they see that they aren't being addressed as 
they should be addressed mm-hmm. as who they are that now it's another right. barrier and not only that but trust now the patient can't trust if they can't trust their provider if the provider at that they've told them things and they were assured like yeah you know this this and that and then all of a sudden in their chart it's like totally the opposite people start losing faith and people sure. start feeling oh well maybe they were just kind of making fun of me whatever it may be and so just making sure that there's accurate documentation and even amongst themselves when they are discussing patients, you know, whether if it's not directly with the patient, but, you know, just amongst colleagues about a point patient case, just making sure that you're using the correct identification, just these little things and continuing to practice that I think really helps and just kind of continuing to provide education in services and just in, you know, the day-to-day competency and trainings, I think is very important. With everything that you have learned in your practice in the clinic, clearly we've both agreed that this is not something we typically learn in pharmacy yeah. school. What is your, you know, ideal goal, what would you like to see in improving pharmacy workforce awareness? Because it's not only the pharmacists that are interacting with, it could be student pharmacists on rotation. Sometimes it's pharmacy technicians doing med med conciliation. So what would you like to see in this care space eventually? I would definitely like to see it integrated across all medical education, but more specifically to all pharmacy education. I think that it is very important. It's very vital. And I think you touched upon it. Like, you know, hey, if a pharmacy student came to rotation and the preceptor doesn't even know it. I mean, it's a great learning opportunity to say, yeah, I mean, we're always learners, but it is really important to kind of really normalize it, right? And provide that education. So one of the things is I think there needs to be integrated in education into pharmacy schools. And there's actually something me and my colleague, Dr. Garcia, who I worked with on the poster and also one of the chaplain who was on our team helped create is a transgender healthcare elective with one of my former professors at my alma mater, Western University. We actually did one pilot this past fall. We had about 14 students, but I I do want to say the feedback that we got was they learned something that they never would have guessed that they would have learned. We had students that worked outpatient and saw, you know, things like testosterone pumps and they were curious about that. So getting that insight, I think was really important to them. And that's something I hope we continue to do across all schools. As far as established pharmacists that haven't gotten the education, you know, CEs, and that's something that we also have been piloting as well. So, you know, shameless advertisement, we have a CE coming up sometime in the fall. So through Western University, but I think, you know, overall, just continuing to provide continued education to pharmacists that haven't gotten it, and then integrating it to all schools, to the incoming students or current students, I think would be something that is very important. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. If you haven't before, I encourage you to check out all ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers for those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Connect community, where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thank you again for tuning in for this episode of Therapeutic Thursdays, and join us here every Thursday, where we'll be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP's podcast with your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.